dealing with the metamorphosis of Jesus Christ, the aftermath. We actually did the metamorphosis, yes, last week, but now we're dealing with the aftermath. Don't speak Elijah and evil spirits. And we begin, yes, this is true, and we begin in Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. Lord Jesus, as we read your word, Lord, and study this morning, please be with us, Lord. Please send us your spirit and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, the metamorphosis of Jesus Christ, first slide so far with the metamorphosis, also commonly referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. We see that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter declared that, and I believe God confirms it through the transfiguration of the metamorphosis of Christ. Uh, the scene that we saw last week, the kind of a worship service. It was a, like I described it as God did actually put his face to the clouds because it was a very clear visual picture of, of the kingdom of heaven un, unleashed before his disciples. And so Paul, or not Paul, but, but Peter declared Jesus the Messiah, son of God, through the revelation of God. Now they're taken up on this hilltop and Jesus is transfigured, literally transformed or metamorphosized right before their eyes. Um, and then God declares again, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He uses other terms, like this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I like that, because we need to listen to Jesus. A lot of times we want to uh, put words in his mouth. A lot of times we want to assume that he's saying or thinking things that we think that he should say or think. But we need to sometimes just shut our mouths and listen to what he says and just take it at face value. So... This revelation of the Messiahship was revealed to God, or revealed by God to Peter, and declared through the transfiguration. Heard, seen by Peter, James, and John. Okay, next slide. So that takes us to where we are this morning, where I entitled three sections here. The first section, don't speak. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now it seems a bit strange, especially from an evangelistic perspective, which I believe um, Peter very much so was of the evangelistic mindset. He wanted to declare. He wanted to be a herald, like many other heralds of his time, to say, listen, God's kingdom is here. The Messiah is here. This is what we've been waiting for historically. Isn't this fantastic? So the natural response would be, let's, let's get the, the word out. Let's get the word out. This is good news, right? But Jesus is something a bit peculiar. And it says in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, so this is them seeing this amazing thing, right? Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen. Okay. This is weird. What? Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Ah, this is weird in so many ways, in so many levels. I mean, imagine being there with Jesus and hearing this. Okay, we just saw something amazing, and now you're telling us how to see anything. Until, okay, okay, we can share it, but we need to wait. What do we need to wait for? What? You're going to, what, die and be raised from the dead? Now, first of all, that's weird, Jesus. I mean, I don't know how that's possible, but okay. I mean, I'm just pretending like I'm the disciples right now, you know, with him. I mean, this must have been a shock to the system. What do you mean? 
raised from the dead. What, what is this all about? You're, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're not going to be defeated. Why would you be raising from the dead, you know? But Jesus is going to keep communicating to them the fact that the cross has to happen. He's going to keep communicating because it doesn't really register with them at this point. And sometimes I think with us, God tries to speak to us and doesn't register after three, four, five, six million times. Finally, he has to show us. And I think it's happened with the disciples. He kept telling them. It didn't register with them until they actually, they saw it firsthand. Oh, I get it. I get it. But for right now, let's just, you got to keep it quiet because God's plan is unfolding. And just be patient. Just be patient. Even thinking about the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came upon the church. They were told then to wait in the upper room and be patient. Because if they would have rushed and they would have run out in the flesh, as we would say, went on their own strength, their own power, however you want to describe it, it would have been the wrong time. They needed to wait until God's time. And that's why God's kingdom is interested in God's will. God's will is what God wants to do in his time, in his ways. So the Holy Spirit needs to come to the church in Pentecost. Here, the cross needs to be fulfilled, right? Um... I put here 1620 because we already talked about that, how earlier he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So he, he's kind of got this little, just keep it on low down. This is almost like it's part of their training. Just, just know this stuff. Know I've said it. Make it a part of who you are and it'll make sense in the future. You know what I'm saying? Imagine if he just died and whatever and, then, and they just disappeared and then he rose again but nobody was there to watch it. Ah, you know, but he had to teach him. He had to instruct him. Okay, you need to know this for yourself, but then when things start to unfold, it'll start to make sense. It's like how the prophets in the Old Testament said a lot of crazy things people didn't understand until they were fulfilled. And again, I put Isaiah 50, 31, which is an awesome verse. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint. That's the thing. Waiting. Waiting isn't doing nothing. Waiting's, I think, a very active process. Waiting is trusting, sitting, participating with what God's doing right now. It may not be something as dynamic as we would hope it to be, but waiting is sometimes a very important thing. When waiting on the Lord, our strength is renewed. If we go out on our own strength, or if we go out with our own feeble strength, what can we accomplish? But when we wait on the Lord, He will lift us up in due time. He will call us out on due time. And then real strength will come out, such that we shall be like mounted up on wings like eagles, like running and not being weary, like walking and not fainting. Next slide, please. So that's the first section. Second section here is Elijah, about Elijah. Okay? And I entitled this one, But Has the Kingdom of God Really Come? Because again, it seems a bit odd. Why are we waiting? Why are we quiet? You know, there's a lot of confusion. Because I think the expectation at the time was a dynamic, powerful, just military takeover when the Messiah comes. They're waiting for a military takeover. Just wipe out the Gentiles, get rid of the Greeks and the Romans, <laughs> and bring your people home. Be our king, you know, in a military sense. So what's going on here, God? And what's the deal with this Elijah fellow? So the disciples ask him in verse 9. Wait, did I, is that right? I think my verses, my reference are all weird in this one. It's 10, I thought so. This is 10 through 
Yeah, this is 10 to 13, okay? So, yeah, I missed my friends, so sorry. So the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Okay, so again, they're a little bit confused. The reference here is from Malachi 4, 5. And it says this, see, I will send my prophet Elijah. Okay, this is God speaking. I will send my prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Again, the idea here is when the Messiah comes, the day of reckoning, if you will. But Elijah will come first. And they're like, but did, we, did, we didn't see Elijah. There are expectations. You know, and we have expectations. We, we wanted to see Elijah. And you're here. What happened to Elijah? I mean, the old guys <laughs> were telling us to wait for Elijah to come. The, the old Malachi, or Malachi, as we say it in East Coast America, Malik, Malachi. Hey, Malachi, what's going on? He said, Elijah's going to come first. Where is he? No Malachi. Well, Jesus said Malachi did come, okay? He goes on to say, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. In, I put it in different translations. The New American Standard says this, which is a good um, literal translation. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Again, coming. He's coming in future tense. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things in the New King James and then the King James says, Elias, which is a word for Elijah, truly shall come first and restore all things. So here we see possibly an indication of another kind of restorer or preparer for the yet future return of Jesus Christ. So we're looking, what was Jesus saying here? He's saying that Elijah will come. So maybe there is an Elijah, a kind of future, prepare. Uh, the book of Revelation has two prophets, Moses and Elijah. Um, and they're being big mouths <laughs> on the Mount of Zion. And uh, people try to kill them. And then three days later, they're raised again. And they're being big mouths again. Kind of, maybe that's the prophecy of the future time when Jesus will come again. Where there's like a warning, a, a testimony, a, a, a preaching, evangelism of the world, a resistant world that hates God and everything that God stands for, tries to kill these two prophets, but then they are raised again. Maybe this is what he's talking about. I don't know. But he goes on to say, I tell you, Elijah has already come. So maybe there's two types of Elijahs, one yet to come and one has come. But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did not recognize him. Huh? What do you mean? We didn't see Elijah. Because it would have been an amazing thing, wouldn't it? Maybe it wouldn't be an amazing thing. Maybe it would just be a simple thing. That's the other thing. I think our expectations of God is that when he does something, we always expect it to knock our socks off. You know? He did do something special. He did bring in Elijah, but you didn't recognize him. You didn't, because we have to be spiritually minded and spiritually sensitive to recognize some of the things that God's doing because it's subtle. And it was a subtle thing, but it was a powerful thing. So you didn't recognize them, but have done, um, well, but I, Elijah has come, and they did not recognize them, rather, but have done to him everything they wished. And this is in a negative sense, by the way. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Oh, John the Baptist. He was not Elijah, in the sense that um, his name wasn't Elijah. <laughs> And he wasn't the actual Elijah of the Old Testament, but he's a type of Elijah. He kind of, his ministry is similar to that of Elijah's, right? And, and that makes sense. And that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. 
Uh, Matthew, 4, Matthew 11, 14, we've already dealt with this. And if you are willing to accept it, this is Jesus speaking here. He, speaking of John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. So what is Elijah? What's John the Baptist's ministry? It's, it's, it's like I said here earlier, it's a restorer or a preparer. We know very clearly that John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way for the Lord. Make your path straight. So when we talk about this being Elijah, it's not the actual like reincarnation of Elijah. It's not the resuscitation of Elijah. Not even the resurrection of Elijah. It's the same ministry capacity of Elijah. That's John the Baptist. He came to prepare like we would expect Elijah to do. Elijah was almost like he, he came for Elisha. And he came to, to call out to the, to the kings and the queens of Israel and Judea at the time. To prepare, prepare for the Lord. Of course, they rejected and refused him, which is kind of funny. Just like how we see here with John the Baptist, he was rejected and refused, right? And possibly in the Revelation, when we see the two prophets, they were rejected and refused. So we can see that they are kind of heralds. They're spokesmen of God to prepare people, but yet refused, rejected. Interesting. Next slide. Now, the third section, evil spirits. Evil spirits. With Christ, not a problem. Okay? I know every Tuesday they have the spiritualist church in here. Do you guys know that? Yes. Every Tuesday, the spiritualist church. And we don't have to worry about... We, 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 don't, we don't need to worry about that because, you see, in those spirits, we got Christ. We don't need to worry about it. Don't need to worry about it. Christ deals with spirits. We don't need to talk to them. We don't need to commune with them. We don't need to be afraid of them. God's got under control. We trust in Christ. Matthew seventeen fourteen says this. When they come to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures, okay? Seizure, like an epileptic kind of seizure. Uh, and the way it's described is very similar to what we might expect from one who maybe have an epileptic seizure. And he's suffering greatly, first of all, from it. He often falls into fire or into water. Because he loses control. As we know, a person who would have a seizure like this would just kind of collapse a lot of times. They're just, so if they're next to something hot, they might burn themselves. If they're next to a pool, they may fall into it. So it's common sense, okay? It's kind of, we would say in today's case, quite a, um, not, not a common, but something that I think we all would have some experience with somebody who might have something like this. You know, an epileptic kind of seizure. You know, maybe a falling down, maybe some jerking involved with it. Um, here it seems a bit violent. Maybe he, he had violent convulsions. Um, so he brings his son to his disciples for healing. Okay, I've seen what you guys have done. You've healed lots of different people. Can I have some healing for my son here? I'm really concerned about him. I mean, some people who have seizures like this have quite a bit. Um, and they can be, again, quite violent, quite rigorous, as this one appears to be. And he's concerned for his Child's well-being. Kill him like you've healed other people. And Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, before I get to there, they could not heal him. Disciples could not heal him. So he brought up to the disciples, disciples could not heal them. We're going to get to why in just a moment. Why could the disciples not heal him? I did put a note here, by the way. Possible signs of epilepsy um, historically associated with, I didn't realize this, lunacy. Madness provoked by the moon. Historically, I was talking about the Victorians and whatnot, and medieval people, they would kind of associate, oh, they're mad. That's why they're doing these weird things. They're mad. They're lunar or lunatics, you know. Uh, this, this boy 
Well, 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 we know exactly what's wrong with this boy, as the scripture tells us. He did have a physical ailment, a physical illness, but he also had a spiritual one. And the spiritual one, Jesus can deal with. Because we're going to see how Jesus deals with the spiritual problem, the spiritual sickness or ailment. He's going to deal with it. And consequently, it's going to affect him physically to the point where we can imply and suggest that he's healed from these seizures. But the problem is, he says, to, I think he's saying, well, he's not just saying it to disciples. He's saying it to disciples. He's saying it to all the people, commoners around. And also, we're going to find out in a moment, there's also a lot of religious leaders here who are d- debating or arguing with the disciples about the right way to deal with it. And we're going to deal with that in a second. And Jesus is frustrated because he shows up. And he goes, what's wrong with you guys? You're unbelieving and perverse. You unbelieving and perverse generation. Whoa, Jesus, you're being harsh. We've already looked at these words and what they mean before. Unbelieving, incredulous, without trust in God. And that's kind of, I think, the key distinction that I remember, what I think about when I think of unbelieving. Without trust in God. Where is your trust? Do you run immediately to other things or do you run straight to God? I mean, do, you really, do we really trust in God? Here we're going to find they were debating, theorizing, Rather than doing, you're, you're unbelieving. You, you go about it without God. Bring God into the picture, guys. Bring God into your life. Bring God into your families. Bring God into your work. You've got to bring in God. And that's what he calls the generation. Generation we know is a group of people, right? It might be your peers and your family, whatever. It, it, it speaks roughly of about 30, 40 years. But it, it speaks of, 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 of the, the, the kind of the mindset of a group of people within a society. Generally speaking, you're unbelieving. You're, you're doing it without God. And you're perverse. Perverse to oppose, plot against the saving purposes and plans of God, to turn aside from the right path, to pervert, to corrupt. Again, consider God. If you're going about it without God, very likely you're going down the wrong road. And that's how it's perverse. It's twisted. It's corrupt. It's going the wrong way. It's the wrong path. God wants to do something here but he's not going to be able to do it if you don't ring him, if you don't consider him, if you don't invite him to the party, if you will. So you're unbelieving, you're perverse. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. I love this. They're theorizing Jesus shows up and just goes, boom. Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Spiritual healings for Jesus, not a problem. Not a problem. Next slide, please. But we do have a problem. We do have an issue. And the issue is this. And I thought long and hard about this. In fact, I struggled a lot about this because I'm like, I understand these verses. I understand what's going on here, but there's something going on because we have like, you know, for instance, yesterday, not yesterday, but a couple days ago, I think it was Friday, there was a lady, um, her name was, I think, Mary, who, who fell and busted her head open in front of our flat, in front of the, on, in, on the street, right there by the crosswalk. And she suffers from seizures, epileptic seizures, right? Like we saw here with the boy. She goes to the church up the road, the Salvation Army. She's been there for as long as I know. Our son goes to the Friday night group. She's always there. Uh, I can guarantee the prayed for I guarantee she's got great faith and trust in the Lord. Why is she not healed? Here also got other pictures. We got Paul, who had this thorn in the flesh. He's a 
I like that depiction because he's known as being quite an ugly fellow, and that looks like an ugly fellow up there. But he had this thorn in the flesh. And we're going to talk about what is this? It was an ailment of some sort. I don't know if it was, some say it was physical, some say it was circumstantial. But regardless, it was an ailment or it was a, a trial or a burden. The reason why we use the word ailment, I have an ailment here, I'm going to explain to you in a moment. Ailment's an interesting word. By the way, ailment, I look at the definition, it means a small illness. It just means like something that's a bit inconvenient, a sickness, an illness. Something that's not major. It's just like, oh, I got the cold. It's an ailment. I got a headache. It's an ailment, right? But the reason why I use the word ailment here to talk about big things as well is because with God and God's power, all of our problems are small, right? So we can look at all of our problems, even if they're major in our perspective, in our way of seeing things. But with God, it's not a big problem. And this boy had a seizure. I mean, that's a major medical issue. This epileptic seizure, that's a major medical issue. But God, Jesus healed him without even blinking. Faith, mustard seeds. We'll deal with that in a second. But, I have, but there's still a problem, guys. There's still a problem. Here's a picture of a, right here. Um, her name is Amy Carmichael, Irish missionary to India. For the last, I think, 10, 20 years of her life, in the mission, she, she fell and she hurt herself really severely and was bedridden. So she was ministering, serving God with all of her heart. She was giving her life to the Lord. Talking about faith to up, leave, persecuted, and she gets severely injured and she spends the rest of her life bedridden, still ministering to people, still devoted, still faith. What about her? Where's her healing at? There's a, that's um, Joni Erickson Tata right there. She's uh, still alive, actually. Um, but uh, there's her painting a picture with a, um, with a paintbrush in her mouth because she was paralyzed from shoulders down. When she was, I think, 18, she, um, like, I think she dove into, into a body of water and she misjudged and, and basically crippled herself for life. And she's uh, probably 70, 80 years old now, probably quite, she's quite old, I imagine. No? Don't know, Danny? You do? You think she's, okay. I mean, that picture looks like it's probably taken in the 60s or 70s, and she looks like she's, so yeah, she's probably, I don't, I don't know how old she is. But the reality is, her whole life, paralyzed in a wheelchair. But she, her writings, her ministry, you know, she's, she, she's, a, she's an advocate for people with disabilities. What about her? Does she have no faith? She's given her life to God. God seems to be blessing her in other ways, but why not blessing her of the healing? Is it because she doesn't have enough faith? See, we have a problem here, guys, don't we? And I have a theory. That's the reason why I've got this up here. And I apologize, you have a pastor who loves, who's a perpetual student of philosophy and theology, so I think about things deep and hard. I hate problems. I hate having problems and just leaving them aside and go, ah, we'll forget about it. I have to. And I tell you, this week I struggle when I look at these scriptures. I struggle. I go, God, I need to know the answer. What is the, what's going on here? And I looked at all the solutions, and there seems to be two different I would call them extremes to the solutions to the problem of ailments or when God heals. Why does he not sometimes and other times? Why? What is the deal? And I think these are two, I would call them extremes. You may disagree with me. And I think every single one of us in this room might find themselves maybe either on either side of one or two or somewhere in the middle. But the thing is, when I had to choose for myself, which one should I teach? I know what Calvary would generally teach my peers in ministry, but I want to know for myself, what do I really believe? I don't want to give a textbook response. So I prayed and prayed all week. Ask Danny. I, I was actually moody most of the week because I wanted to find a solution. And I believe God gave me something. And I want to offer it to you guys this morning. It's a bit of a theory, I know. And 
But I just want to throw it out there because I think it could be helpful when dealing with these things, especially if we know and deal with people in our lives who suffer from things like this, right? Like, are we miles? You know, I want to make sense of it because I get frustrated. If I want to be like group one in the extreme side, then I ask myself, do I not have enough faith for my son to, to walk? Why is he not? Well, he's walking, but, you know, he's still kind of a bit odd and he still has this, this ability. Why is he not healed like the boy who was epileptic? Why, why do we still see signs of, of disability? I don't I not have enough faith? Does my wife not have faith? Does my church not have enough faith? So I want to deal with these issues. And obviously the first side of things is this. There's the claim that God heals all ailments if there's enough faith. That's one side. We'll call that camp one or group one. The other one is this. God does not heal in the same way as we see it taught in the scripture. So the first one, God heals all ailments if there's enough faith. I would say this as all ailments are spiritual. All ailments are spiritual. God heals all spiritual ailments. Boom. We just got to have enough faith. You don't have enough faith? God's not going to heal. Okay? The other side is this. God does not heal in the same way as we see it taught in Scripture. These things we see in the Scripture, these miracle, miraculous healings, are only intended to authenticate Christ and his disciples. That's two different perspectives. So I think initially we might be somewhere in between those. There's a problem with both of these views, and I'm going to explain to you, right? And this is the reason why I had to think of something else, or I had to ask God for something, because I, I find a problem with both these views. The first one, God heals all ailments. The problem I have with that is it seems to imply that all ailments, all these sicknesses, all these illnesses, are circum, uh, except circumstantial ones, like persecution brought on by one's faith. Like Paul, we'll see Paul later on. He was persecuted a lot, and the church was persecuted a lot. These are ailments or, or trials or tribulations that are brought about by a circumstance. Faith in God, for instance, right? But the thing is, the problem with this, this view, it's a bit harsh. It suggests that there's a lot of people doing faith wrong. It's almost like if you think really hard, how much faith is a, is a faith the size of mustard seed? Jesus made it very clear, it just takes a wee bit of faith. He couldn't have gone any, he, he could pick up a, big, a grain of sand, so maybe he could have gone a little bit further as an illustration. But he, he wanted to make the point, it just didn't take a huge amount of concentration and faith, and you have to go to a certain faith healer or faith man to get healed. It takes small faith. So this view seems a bit harsh because it implies a lot of people are doing faith wrong, and that's harsh. Also, experience disagrees with this. Again, with Miles. Um, that lady I mentioned earlier, Mary, I think it's her name, you know, Joni Exitata and Carmichael, Paul. Experience seems to disagree with it because we see faithful people still suffering, right? Okay, problem number two, camp two or group two. The people say God is not healed the same way he was taught in the scriptures. The biggest problem I have with that is it's unscriptural. Why would Jesus say the things he did about faith, like we're reading here, if it weren't true, right? We need to say, well, why would Jesus teach on healing? Why would Jesus teach on faith if it isn't true? I believe that across history, from then, today, and forevermore, God intervenes. God is a part of our life. And if Jesus says, if you have faith, the faith of a mustard seed, we can expect healing, I believe we can expect that. So I, I struggle with that. I think it's unscriptural. And also, it disagrees with experience. Again, you can, be a, you can doubt if you want, but there is supposed evidence around the world today of miraculous healings done by people with faith. We can, so 
there's experience that denies it. Now, whether or not the evidence is, is accurate or true or if it's skewed, I don't know, but there is claims that there is really good evidence to prove that God still heals today. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But the biggest problem I have with this view is it seems to deny the power of God. It does. It says God can't do it. It restricts God. Isn't God's kingdom at hand? Isn't, aren't we born again? Aren't we spiritually filled? Isn't God's power amongst us and with us? This view that says, well, it's just for Jesus' disciples, but not for us, seems to restrict God. We don't want to restrict God. We don't want to deny the power of God. So we have a problem then. And the problem is this. How do these different viewpoints answer the question of Paul's thorn? Do you guys know about Paul's thorn? Are you guys familiar with that? Well, it's in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about how God gave him this affliction. He calls it a thorn of the flesh. And he asked God three times in faith to remove it. But God did not remove it. Did Paul not have enough faith? Well, I think everybody would agree, no matter where you are, that Paul was a man of great faith. <laughs> so it was, faith wasn't the issue for Paul. What was the issue? Well, the yes people, or the people who say yes to um, all spiritual healings through faith, they say that Paul's thorn was not a physical ailment because he had too much faith for that. Too much faith. It wasn't a physical. It was a spiritual attack meant to slow him down. These were circumstantial ailments. They were the result of his faith in his ministry. Like being beaten up. Remember he said he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. You know all the descriptions in 2 Corinthians? All things that happened to him for the gospel's sake. However... And this is what they say, claim, however, Scripture is not clear to what this thorn really is, except it was a messenger of Satan, and it tormented him. Okay, that's what they say. They say it was a circumstantial ailment. It wasn't physical or psychological or anything like that. But the no camp, the people who say the Scriptures, you know, all miracles in the Scriptures, they don't really apply today, you know. They say that this thorn was a physical ailment, possibly an eye disease that was incurable, even by faith. This was given to him to teach him humility. However, and they agree with this, however, scripture is not clear to what the thorn really is, except it was a messenger of Satan and it tormented him. So they, have, they, they agree on one point, that they really don't know what the thorn is. So all they can do is speculate. So we speculate it's circumstantial. It's him getting beaten up and chased out of town. Or it's an actual physical ailment, like an like a, like a eye disease. So, but my theory, the theory I want to give to you guys that I think is a really loving, caring, good theory is open to both. It's not compatibilistic because actually it rejects both those theories. It's an, it is a proper new theory, but it's open to either pers- perspective. And I'll tell you why. It, it's because we look at, look at things in categories and in, in degrees. There are a variety of categories and degrees of ailments. So sicknesses, illnesses, categories. So we have spiritual ones, physical ones, psychological ones, uh, circumstantial ones. And I'm going to explain to you more about these. So with this theory, there are spiritual ailments that we can trust God will heal, right? Like we see here with the boy with epilepsy. Jesus came and healed him. No bother. So we have the spiritual elements, and, and you, I, a lot of this theory actually came from a, a, um, a Bible study I went to. Uh, it was an Elam preacher, one of the guys who started um, the Elam church, actually, one of the, f- the founding members, um, old fella. But, and I was a little, you know, I'm a little bit suspicious about what, what the things that they do, but I liked what he said, because they were having a healing service. But he goes, the one healing that God's more interested in more than anything else, and why he sent his son, is spiritual healing. He wants to see you spiritually right with God. He wants to see you delivered 
Okay, deliver from what? Satanic oppression, satanic depression, whatever. Delil from Satan in the flesh and given to Christ. Become spiritually born again. Because that's what Christ is interested in. And then all the other healings and, and ailments and sufferings and trust, then we'll pray for that and see what God does. I like that because I think what he did is exactly what I think I'm going to suggest today. He categorized things. He goes, spiritual things we can expect God will heal if we pray in faith. But there are other ailments, like physical ones and psychological ones. So what we should do is start, is first start with that and pray for complete spiritual healing. Again, that's what Mark, it says in Mark 9, 29, with this scripture, with a, with a boy. And they ask, why could we not heal him? What's going on, Jesus? He says, because this can only come out with prayer. So what happens? Is there spiritual oppression, depression, possession, whatever? What do we do? We pray for it. That's it. Faith, trust in God, pray for it. Some, um, um, some, some uh, translations say prayer and fasting. But fasting is believed by most good of the majority texts that was added later on. But you can fast if you want to. Fasting is a good thing. But prayer is definitely in there. We should be praying for these things. So again, there are physical, psychological ailments, okay, like depression, you know, whatnot, physical ones like cancer, you know, different like that. Even, even small ones, big ones, small ones, whatever. And they're distinctive from spiritual. Kind of like the boy. And there's also, sometimes the spiritual things can affect physical things, like the boy, for instance, who had the physical uh, epilepsy, right? But it was caused because of the spirit. But they're just distinct, and they can be made distinct. They're also circumstantial, accidental, consequential ailments, as distinctive from spiritual ailments. However, spiritual ailments can be results of spiritual oppression, depression, possession, right? For example, sin. Sin is very spiritually oppressing. Sin is very spiritually depressing. And if we're given up to the spiritual thing, like sin, it can lead to other ailments consequently, you know, as a consequence. Like, for instance, one who's prone to drunkenness can possibly, that, can, that long-term lifestyle can lead to, say, something like a physical ailment like cirrhosis of the liver, right? That's common sense. Gluttony and all the other seven deadly sins that we see in, in the scripture, right, can lead to obesity. And, and you can do it with any. And, and so the sin's there, and it can affect us physically, psychologically, as a consequent. But you see how there's different categories, right? Paul may have suffered by way of circumstantial persecution, he may have suffered in physical ailment. It could be either or, according to his theory, because there's a distinction between the physical, the circumstantial, and the spiritual. Okay? There are likely other categories. You can probably add another dozen if you want to. There are also a variety of degrees in which one might suffer an ailment. Think about that. Someone could be temporarily relieved from an ailment or just relieved slightly. Think about Miles. Okay, for instance, last year we prayed that he would walk, right? Is he walking today? Yeah, he is. Are you satisfied that healing? Who are you to determine how much healing is enough, right? Who am I to determine how much healing is enough? So it could be a slight relieving. It could be a slight healing. It could be a massive thing. We don't want to limit God. No, 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 no. But we should praise God for the little things he does. For, here's an example of a temporary relievement of an ailment. Lazarus. Lazarus was healed from physical death by Jesus. You know how he was raised from the dead, right? He was relieved from physical death. Did he remain alive physically forever? 
No, it was a temporary healing. He died later on in life, like we all do. What about other examples of healing in the Bible? Did they not suffer from ailments like, I don't know, the common cold, headache, hunger, cancer, flu, heart attack, mental depression? We don't know what happened to this boy. The boy was healed from the seizures. But would that mean he was completely healed from other things? You think he didn't have a cold or a flu? Do you think he died from something else later on in his life? You see, I'm saying there's different degrees. And to what degree of healing would we then expect? We have to ask us a question. Is it a little enough, or do we expect perfection? I want to be healed, be a perfect specimen of a person. Isn't that a bit naive? Is it possible to be totally or perfectly healed anyways? And if, that is, and if it is possible, then show me who's the perfect specimen. <laughs> you know, it ain't me, it ain't you guys, sorry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So here's, that's a theory I give to you guys. Chew on it. Think about it. This theory, I believe, agrees with Scripture. It does. It, it, it fits with all the different Scriptures we talk about, especially like the thorn Scriptures of Paul. This theory agrees with experience. Okay? It does. Because we see people who are of great faith who suffer, and we see people who are healed. It agrees with experience. Different categories. This theory allows for God's power or His intervention in history. You know, so it's for today. We see God in human history, past, present, future. We see His power intervening with us. It allows for that. This theory also allows for God to use his power according to how he sees best fit. So again, one of the, like camp one, for instance, tend to say, we are, have the control. We have the control. If we have enough faith, we can control God. Who's to say that we, this, the word we use here is sovereignty. It's God's power, not ours. Sovereignty. We ask, we pray in faith, but we allow God to make the decisions. God decided to heal that boy. Because he was a spiritual ailment, he was spiritually possessed, he needed to be healed of it, and it happened. It was right. That's what God wants. But there are other things, other categories, like psychological, physical, circumstantial, all the different things I mentioned. And you can add others if you want to. That maybe God wants us to have, like the thorn in Paul's side. He wanted to have that to humility, but also for other reasons. For instance... Her in ministering to people with disabilities, she understands, she sympathizes, she has that character cross. Remember talking about picking up a cross? She, that's her cross. She carries it and it helps her to bridge gaps. So it's for her. And it's not because God doesn't love her or love other, anybody more than others. God loves us all equally, but we all have different crosses to bear. So the bottom line is total trust in God, guys. It's really not about us and our theories. So there's a theory, but forget about the theories. It's not about our theories. Because see here, Jesus, in verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why could we not drive him out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, I've been implying this scripture the whole time, so we've already dealt with it quite a bit. You can say to the mountain, move it from here, and it'll be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. Okay, it's interesting about this is when we do make it about us, when we do make it about not God and his plan, weird things can happen. And I think that's kind of what happened when Jesus came down and he saw this situation. Mark 9, 14 says this. When they came to the other disciples, this is Jesus and the Peter, James and John, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. You see, what were they doing here? They were theorizing. See, it's okay to theorize like we did a little bit this morning. But the bottom line is, there's also time for doing. When Jesus showed up, they should have been doing, not theorizing. It was the wrong time to theorize. 
They should be doing. They should be healing. Problem is their theories hold them back. Oh, but we can't. We're going to be held back by our theories. When your theories hold you back, reject those theories. I know I give you theory, but if that theory holds me back, I got to reject it. If it holds God back, I got to reject it. Jesus came and said, stop arguing, stop theorizing, and start doing. And that's the bottom line. You didn't exercise any faith because you were doing this, and you're arguing with each other, and you weren't praying for the boy. All you had to do is rebuke that demon, and he would have been gone. But you didn't because you're doing this. So for us, it may seem impossible. For Christ, it's not a problem. He just did it. Faith is concerned with God's will. That's the thing. When we talk about faith, we talk about God's will. What is God's will? And we got to ask us like, different questions, like why is God doing what he's doing? Are we asking for things for our own convenience because it would be nice for us? Or are we asking according to God's will? Faith is connected with God's will, trusting in God, total trust in God. The spirit-filled life, kingdom kind of life, as we say, requires faith. Again, total trust in God. There ought to come a time when we stop theorizing, like I said, and start doing. Here is doing. He replied, this kind cannot come out, but only by prayer. This kind can come out only, rather, by prayer. And that's Mark 9.29. Anyone can pray. Any person can pray. That's why it's it's a mustard seed. It's really small. Any person, even children. I had children pray this morning. Anyone can pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He taught the disciples. This is how you pray. Your kingdom come. Your way, God. Your will be done. Your way, God. 